This is a recording from the University of Virginia's More Than a Score lecture series, brought to you by UVA's Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. Thomas Jefferson called the architectural treatise by Andrea Palladio his Bible, and encouraged others to use it as he did. However, Jefferson's knowledge of Palladio and of classical architecture was largely at second hand and through printed sources, which were in turn interpretations of Palladio's work. This led to creative misinterpretations that had an impact on Jefferson's masterpiece, The Lawn at the University of Virginia. Bruce Boucher, director of the UVA Art Museum, explained to an audience at Alumni Hall on September 1st, 2012. I thought for the inaugural uh, lecture for more than the score this year, it would be appropriate to go back to where it all began, to the lawn of the University of Virginia. Because I think if anything embodies Thomas Jefferson's axiom, knowledge is power, it is the lawn with the rotunda as the still central point in the cosmos that he created and coming out from it like two arms embracing the population, the university and the surrounding community, the colonnades and pavilions. Certainly for the lawn, Jefferson used the building blocks of the classical orders of architecture as reinterpreted and systematized by Renaissance theoreticians like Palladio, from the humble Tuscan uh, columns, the stubby little Tuscan columns that we know that create the colonnades in front of the student rooms, the one-story student rooms, to the nobler Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian, which are two stories high, by and large, and signify the pavilions where the students would study on the first floor and the professors lived on the second floor. Jefferson and Palladio misunderstood certain elements and how this impacted the design of the lawn. But I want to begin not with a quote from Jefferson so much as a quote from a younger contemporary of his, Johann Wolfgang Goethe. Goethe wrote in 1786, just as he was beginning an Italian journey, I realize how much I am behind in the fine arts, but I will proceed. At least now I know the way. Palladio has taught it to me. Jefferson would certainly have endorsed those words because Goethe and Jefferson were at one with most people of their generation in their veneration for Andrea Palladio. And indeed, the 18th century, as you probably know, was the high watermark of an architectural movement called Palladianism, which took its name, if not always, its principles from the architecture of the 16th century Italian. And it's difficult today to imagine the hold over the collective imagination of the Western world that Palladio held down to the beginning of the 19th century. Through his buildings and his writings, he had enormous influence. And here I'm showing you the Villa Rotunda, which is probably his most influential building, the one in which he took the dome, which was heretofore sanctified for religious architecture, and domesticated it, used it for a private dwelling. Palladio spent most of his career in the northeast corner of Italy, which is known as the Veneto, and that time it was the land empire of the Venetian Republic. And his career oscillated between Vicenza, where he practiced for most of his life, small town, about uh, two hours ride from the city of Venice, 
And then in the last decade of his life, he died in 1580 in Venice itself. Now, Jefferson's esteem for Palladio was largely, as I said, a bookish one. He never saw any of his uh, works, but when he went to Europe in the 1780s, he had occasion to see reflections of Palladio's architecture in contemporary buildings like Chiswick in an engraving. Uh, this was a little extension to um, an older mansion house that uh, the founder of English Palladianism, Lord Burlington, had built in the 1730s. It was only 68 feet wide. It looks monumental here, but contemporaries said of it that it was too small to live in, but too big to put on your watch chain. <laughs> it, was, it was really an architectural laboratory, which in a way is what Monticello was for Jefferson. And although Jefferson went to see it with John Adams, he professed not to like it. But then he was determined not to like very much that he saw in England. But nonetheless, he did incorporate elements of Chiswick, particularly the dome, uh, into uh, Monticello. When he went to Paris, as our man in Paris, he found architecture and culture much more to his liking. There he studied the latest modern architecture, particularly contemporary houses like the Hotel de Salm, which we see here. Um, it was under construction in 1786, and he described himself as violently smitten with it. He also was particularly smitten with another building, which he saw on his trip to the south of France. This was the only classical temple that he knew, the Maison Carré in Nîmes. And he wrote that about it that he gazed at it for long hours like a lover at his mistress. Jefferson had many books on architecture in his library. And he had, of course, seen much more of the world than most Americans of his day. But he still returned to Palladio and insisted upon his primacy as an architectural guide. But the question is really, which Palladio was he talking about? And I'm showing you here two versions of the elevation of the Villa Rotunda by Palladio. The one on the right is Palladio's own, the one that he sanctioned in the 1570 publication of the Quattro Libri. The one on the left, which is, if you put the books next to each other, twice as big, a big folio volume, is the English translation that was published by Giacomo Leone, a Venetian architect, in London between 1715 and 1720. Jefferson owned the English version by Leone, but he owned it in a later reprint of 1742. And so this is the Villa Rotunda as Jefferson knew, and on the right, what Palladio published. Leone, as you can see, didn't hesitate to add his own embellishments to Palladio's designs, most notably the windows, the ocular windows that you see in the dome, which do not appear in Palladio. If we then compare Palladio's published version with the actual Villa Rotunda, you can see that Palladio, too, was not, as it were, telling the truth. Um, he publishes here this semicircular dome, which looks more ecclesiastical than the little stepped dome that was actually built. So what is going on? I think when Palladio published his book in 1570, he used it as an occasion to look back over a career that already was uh, three decades long, 
And he didn't hesitate to bring up to date some of his earlier projects, which were already you know, more than 20 years old, and even a building that was going on at the time the book went to press. Uh, the Villa Rotunda was begun in 1569. He published in it what he wanted to build, not what was actually built. And you can imagine probably he showed this design to the patron, and the patron said, no, it's too expensive. We go for the lower profile, cheaper um, step dome. And I don't think it ever occurred to Palladio that hundreds of years later, people would come with the book in hand looking for these buildings and noticing the uh, discrepancies. And if we go back to Goethe, whom I quoted a few moments ago, you can see uh, in his description of going to Vicenza and going to, to Venice the bafflement that he felt. He discovered when he went to Vicenza that not all of Palladio's buildings were finished. And Goethe, in his notes, uh, he wrote a, a diary, which he then published uh, in 1816 as a travelogue about his time in Italy. And you can see that he's making sense of this. And he, he concluded that Palladio's noble buildings, as he described them, had been defaced by the filthy habits of men who did not understand his superior mind. Palladio, in his interpretation, was a misunderstood genius. In Venice, he had admired in the book the three pages that Palladio devoted to a big religious composition, commission he had, a convent, the convent of the Carità, you know it today as part of the Academia Gallery in Venice. And Goethe was shocked that this design was only achieved in a small corner of the courtyard, this here. Roughly one-tenth of Palladio's design as he sets it out in the, convent, con in the uh, four books of architecture. More shocking still was Palladio's interpretation of the Temple of Minerva at Assisi. This was a late antique temple in the center of Italy, in central Italy, in the town of St. Francis. Goethe went out of his way to go there to see this temple, which he knew from Palladio's book. He'd studied Palladio's book in Germany before he set out on his, uh, his tour. And he was so surprised by the difference between the facade that he saw and the facade as presented by Palladio that he called Palladio's uh, rendering of it a monstrosity. And he re reluctantly concluded that Palladio never saw it, and he was relying good-naturedly on someone else's uh, account of the building. But in point of fact, Palladio did go there. We know that he went through Assisi on a number of occasions. And what he was simply doing was altering the facade to fit his own architectural biases uh, to do what the, the Roman architect should have done if he'd been better informed. <laughs> As I said, Jefferson never had the opportunity to go to Italy. He briefly was in Turin and Genoa, and then he had to <coughs> excuse me, turn around and go back to France. He had what he called a peep into Elysium. So the books, particularly Palladio's, became very important to him. And when he was designing the university's lawn, they became fundamental to the building blocks, to the way he interpreted the building blocks 
of classical architecture. He used not only Palladio's treatise, but also another book, which I'm showing you here, an engraving from a 17th century reprint of a 16th, of a, no, sorry, 18th century reprint of a 17th century treatise, which looked at Palladio, Scamazzi, other Renaissance architects' interpretation of antiquity and juxtaposed it with Vitruvius, the Roman uh, theoretician of architecture, and also presented some of the orders that Palladio didn't illustrate, such as this Doric order from the Baths of Diocletian. And what Jefferson clearly liked about it was the frieze, which had this sun god in it. And you see that in Pavilion 1, the frieze here. I'm sorry, it's not very visible, but you can have a check later, a fact check. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted the pavilions to serve as a kind of outdoor lecture theater for professors and students. And so each one has a different order taken from a different model of Roman architecture. Now, ironically, Jefferson's veneration for Palladio was not shared by the one architect whom he relied on and who also played a critical role in the lawn as we know it today. And that was Benjamin Latrobe. He was exactly a generation younger than Jefferson. He was born in England. He had the benefit of professional architectural training and also exposure to continental European architecture that Jefferson never had. He was fond of saying, he came to the United States in the 1790s, mid-90s, and he was fond of saying that he was the only trained architect in America, which was largely true at that time. Uh, now, the years of Latrobe's training were marked by the discovery and publication of ancient Greek architecture, beginning in the 1760s. And also by the excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which revolutionized the way in which people thought about Roman domestic architecture. People began to realize that the Romans lived in a much more intimate, uh, asymmetrical way than Palladio and his contemporaries imagined them living. They imagined them living in structures that were like the Roman baths because that's what they knew of a kind of quasi-domestic architecture. And Early on in his career, in the 1790s, before he went to America, uh, Latrobe built a country house in Sussex, and he didn't use one of the Roman classical orders, but he used a Greek order. And here I'm showing you the Greek order from a book called The Antiquities of Athens, which was published in three volumes beginning in 1764, and it showed you, and we'll come back to this again in a little while, the, this order, which is not quite a Corinthian order, it's the order of the Tower of the Winds, and you can see that he uses it here on this staircase in this house in uh, Sussex. What the publication of this book and also travel in Greece did was to undermine the authority of Palladio with a younger generation of architects they began to question whether they were infallible guides to antiquity. And also they discovered, as one contemporary of Latrobe, the great German architect Schinkel said, there were many interesting buildings in Italy and Greece that had been built without reference to the rules of Palladio. <laughs> Latrobe echoed these sentiments about Palladio, and while he was 
architect of the Capitol in Washington under Jefferson. He wrote, Palladio and his successors and contemporaries endeavored to establish fixed rules for the most minute parts of the orders. The Greeks knew no such rules, but having established <coughs> general proportions and laws of form and management, all matters of detail were left to the talent and taste of the individual architect. And this is amply proved in their best building. And here I'm showing you a juxtaposition of Palladio's Roman Ionic capital next to the much larger Greek Ionic uh, that was only discovered in the late 18th century and then was instrumental in creating a new type of Ionic capital which was part of what's called Greek revival architecture. Latrobe called himself a bigoted Greek and loved to use the Greek uh, orders as he did in the Cathedral of uh, Baltimore. Uh, but there was one area in which he, like many 18th century architects and uh, dilettantes, did acknowledge Palladio, and that was in Palladio's interpretation of the Roman baths. What Latrobe said about the Roman baths was that he admired them for their immense size, the bold plans and arrangement of the buildings. They were popular from the middle of the 18th century thanks to the rediscovery of Palladio's drawings of them, which Palladio had intended to uh, publish but never lived long enough to do here. But he took the pattern of the Baths of Caracalla and the Baths of Diocletian to create this theme, this repetitive theme that you find in all of his um, reconstructions, which um, also informed, of course, his religious architecture. And that was this combination of large and small orders, different kinds of vaulting, and usually at the center of the complex was a rotunda, symbolized in San Giorgio by the dome and symbolized here in the Baths of Constantine by this domed structure, which is like the Pantheon in Rome. It was inspired by the Pantheon in, in Rome. And I think it was this particular reconstruction by Palladio that had a direct influence on Jefferson's lawn. Now, the original complex of the baths, you can see here as created by, reconstructed by Palladio, and this is almost wholly imaginary. And here, of course, the Pantheon, which did survive. And what was known was that the same man was the original patron of both, Marcus Vipsius Agrippa, who was the son-in-law of the Emperor Augustus and had founded in around 25 BC the Pantheon and then subsequently had given the money for the thermal complex which bore his name. It was known that the baths were south of the Pantheon and that the two structures were aligned axially. Now, in his plan of the Pantheon in the four books, and I'm showing it to you here, Palladio alludes to the connection by this fragment of a building, which you see here in his fuller, his amplification of the whole spot. And if you go to the Pantheon today and you go behind it, you'll see that there are the remnants of a big basilical structure. Nobody knows exactly what it is or what its purpose was. And, but Palladio uses this as the pretext for assuming that the baths were en suite with the temple 
what we now know is that um, the modern archaeology has shown that the baths were separate from the Pantheon and were a few hundred feet away and they were not as grand or as symmetrical as, as Palladio assumed. They were irregular, they were smaller, they were more like the kinds of buildings we see when we go to Pompeii or Herculaneum. Now, for Palladio and most Renaissance architects, the idea that a big complex like this wouldn't be symmetrical, wouldn't be balanced, was literally incredible because they had this belief that Roman architecture, classical architecture, was much more systematic and symmetrical uh, and balanced than it actually was. It was they who created this idea of the hierarchy of the orders and sought to systematize the scale of the columns, the distance between the columns for each of the different four orders. This was not something you found in antiquity. They also gave them personalities, the Doric being more robust and masculine, the Ionic and Corinthian more, like, uh, more feminine. All of this really is the result, basically, of overwriting by the Renaissance of bits and pieces, scattered references in uh, ancient architecture. Now, there's an additional element here which I think has resonance for the lawn, and that was that Cameron, and I'm showing you here the frontispiece of his edition of uh, the Baths of the Romans from 1772. It was a bilingual edition, very large folio. And in it, in his discussion of the Baths of Agrippa, he repeats a popular view in the 18th century that the Pantheon was not a temple, but it was a grand entrance to the thermal complex, to the Baths of Agrippa. In other words, it was a secular structure. And in his account of this, he quotes a large chunk of a pamphlet that had been published in 1749 by an Italian cleric called Pietro Lazzeri, in which he argued that the Pantheon was secular in origin and it only became uh, a temple when it was Christianized in the 6th century AD. Cameron elaborated on this in his description of the synergy between the Pantheon and the Baths, writing that in the Baths there were theaters, amphitheaters, basilicas, beside the amazing number of chambers, the other necessary accommodation for the purposes of bathing. They were furnished with spacious halls and porticos for walking, with exedrae and seats for the meetings of the philosophers. The most complete libraries in the city were transported thither. In short, they represented an academical village in embryo. And this brings us back to the genesis of the lawn. We know that Jefferson began designing a central college from 1814, and he wasn't happy with his original configuration, which was for a series of 10 pavilions around a large rectangle. And this is a, a drawing of uh, an elevation by Jefferson for Pavilion 7, which, as you know, is the first pavilion was actually built. But in Jefferson's original design, at the center of the lawn was another pavilion. He realized that this wasn't quite right, that there needed what he called some principal building at the center of the lawn. And he sought help, as he often did, from professional architects. In 1817, he wrote to William Thornton, Thornton who was 
the first architect of the capital, and also to his friend Benjamin Latrobe, soliciting their ideas for the pavilions. Latrobe wrote a letter to Jefferson in July of 1817, and this is a page from it in which he sketches out his solution for the north side of the lawn. As the architectural historian Fisk Kimball noted almost 100 years ago, Latrobe seems to have been the first to suggest the rotunda as the centerpiece, as well as the use of giant or large orders for some of the pavilions. Latrobe's sketch of the rotunda, linked to the pavilions by a large order of smaller colonnades, created, as he put it, a series of detached masses on different levels. He also proposed separating the pavilions from the rotunda to break up the potential monotony of Jefferson's original concept and also endorsed the idea of injecting variety into the facades through the use of a number of different orders. Moreover, in proposing the rotunda, Latrobe was clearly catering to Jefferson's architectural predilections, even down to the introduction of the oculi. You can't see it, but there are windows in the dome here, which was something Jefferson liked. In fact, when Jefferson was president and, and Latrobe was doing an early design for the dome of the Capitol, he said to him in a letter, why don't you introduce windows as Palladio did in the Villa Rotunda? And Latrobe also was drawing upon contemporary associations of the Pantheon with a type of large secular temple that seemed ready-made for the centerpiece of Jefferson's university. It's impossible to say whether Jefferson would have hit upon a similar plan on his own. He certainly admired buildings like the Pantheon because they, they embodied pure geometric forms. And he proposed a pantheon as a model for the capital in 1791. And in 1792, he submitted anonymously a losing design for the White House, which was a clone of Palladio's Villa Rotunda. But like any good chief executive, Jefferson knew when to seek advice, and more importantly, whose advice to follow. In my opinion, Latrobe's brief but incisive engagement with the lawn imparted a visionary quality and vigor to it, which would have otherwise been lacking. If we allow Latrobe this decisive role in shaping the academical village, it is nonetheless true that it was Palladio's creative misunderstanding of the Baths of Agrippa and Latrobe's and Jefferson's on the nature of the Pantheon, which furnished the key to wielding mass, scale, and classical associations on the lawn creating what the poet Goethe would have called a beautiful fiction. Thank you. <laughs>